I'd like to welcome back everyone to Digital Capital Advisors' weekly podcast series, which features CEOs, founders, and investors in the ad tech and martech spaces, also affectionately known as mad tech these days. My name is Jay MacDonald, and I am the founder, CEO, and managing partner of Digital Capital Advisors, which is our 10-year-old investment bank with offices in New York, Berlin, and San Francisco. This series features some of the industry's most successful entrepreneurs who have built rock-solid businesses that in some way have transformed the buying, selling, and measuring of online advertising. Each podcast will last approximately 30 to 45 minutes. And for this podcast, we could not have a better, more appropriate guest than the CEO of the native programmatic platform, Bitelec, Lon Otremba. Here's a little bit about Lon. Prior to joining and launching Bitelec in 2014, Lon's career in digital media and technology spans more than 20 years. He was a founding EVP of CNET Networks, the founding COO and president of Mail.com, EVP of AOL, CEO Muzak Corp, CEO of Access360 Media, and CEO of Tilted. He's a holder of two patents in the mobile ad tech. He's a former IAB executive member and a graduate of Michigan State University's School of business and received an honorary doctor of law from Walsh College. Welcome, Lon. We're delighted to have you here. Thanks, Jay. It's great, uh, great to be here and great to talk with you. Awesome. Well, why don't we start at the beginning, right? Why don't we start um, with you sharing why you joined your old comrade from ALL, John Ferber, who had developed the original technology for bid to like back in January 2014. Yeah. What, what was the original vision that you saw and how was the, biz- how was the business evolved to where it's at today? So um, I, I had gotten a call from John in uh, about October of 2013. We hadn't spoken in several years, frankly. Uh, we both, after our AOL days, um, had sort of gone off to do other things. Um, just a step before that, even, um, we had first become acquainted with each other when I was the executive in charge that uh, that made the green light to, to make the acquisition of advertising.com where uh, John Ferber and his brother Scott Ferber had founded and created that platform. Um, so it had been a number of years, like I say, and, uh, and John called me up and as, uh, as he was kind of describing some of the things that he was doing, um, he started laying out this idea of, of executing native ads, which actually are, are ads that, that look and feel like the content in which they appear. Um, he, he talked about um, having developed a prototype technology that would enable that to be executed programmatically. And the challenge there has always been that native, uh, at least in 2013 and before, was really sort of a one-off thing. You had to, you sort of had to go web publisher by web publisher to to create the ad execution for that particular website because every website looks different and has different uh, you know different elements to it at any rate um, John, as I like to say you know John's the kind of guy that if he called me up and asked me to 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 join him to do a taco truck I would say yes um, but what he described <laughs> to me was a very appealing and and frankly, uh, intriguing piece of technology. Um, and so he said, there's only one wrinkle. I said, what's the wrinkle? He said, uh, 
we're based in Delray Beach, Florida. And I said, that's not a wrinkle. I'll be on the next plane. And, uh, and we started talking and he kind of laid out the prototype. It was not a commercially viable product at that time, um, but um, sort of laid out what his vision for the, what the platform could do would be. And ultimately, uh, I decided to join him in making a company. And that's what we mm-hmm. did. So, so I remember one of the first times we met, maybe four or five years ago, and I um, and, and I had learned your business was based in Delray Beach. And I and one of the things I was curious about was hiring, recruiting talent. You know, how has that been in Florida? It's a lot. It's a lot better than I than I thought it would ever be. Uh, to be honest, um, you know, there's a couple of couple of interesting things. One is. Um, uh, when I came first came down here, I I had reserved in the back of my mind the idea that if it was there was going to be a challenge to be able to recruit a team here, um, that I wouldn't let that stand in the way of of shifting the technology center of gravity somewhere else, you know, back to New York or out in the valley or some other some other place. Um, but what I what I found and what was such a pleasant surprise is that uh, it turns out there's a fairly a fairly vibrant technology community down here in South Florida. Most people forget, uh, particularly folks um, that um, that are uh, uh, you know young enough uh, where you know they were born after the PC revolution. But the the, the personal computer was actually invented down here in Boca Raton at the IBM Research Center, and um, in fact, not too far away from our current office location. To be honest, um, but um, but Citrix Systems is down here, and Magic Leap, and and a bunch of pretty interesting technology companies are already here. And um, and I guess for lifestyle reasons, and the fact that there's no state income tax. Um, it's, um, it's begun to be a, a, an even more popular place for, for engineering and technology talent to, to reside. So, uh, so far we've not, uh, run into any challenges, frankly. Well, and I would imagine given the pandemic as people rethink, you know, their locale, if you will, particularly big cities, um, and moving, moving to areas that, uh, where they can work remotely, uh, that probably is going to be an advantage, uh, continued advantage for somebody like you, you know, based, you know, and probably from a recruiting standpoint, but also from a retention standpoint. Yeah. Right. You're not, yeah. you're not competing with, uh, you know, your neighbor in Silicon Valley for engineers and so forth, I would imagine. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, there is, we have a certain competitive advantage in that regard too. Um, you know, um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, you know. Everywhere, everyone from our our CTO to our vice president of product, there's you know, there's a sort of four or five of the key folks in the tech staff uh, actually relocated here from, you know, from Washington D.C. and and the Valley and and uh, New York City, you know, where. Um, yeah, this was a this was a good place to relocate to, to as well. So that was that works out. Well, yeah. well talk to us a bit. You, you, the audience who for the podcast generally is a very sophisticated ad tech and martech audience, but and are probably very familiar with you know native advertising. But let, well, let's delve into that a little bit more. Sure. Let's delve into your platform and talk about how it's different, why it works, particularly as it relates to some of the omni-channel guys like 
Um, and I know you don't you don't like to call the trade desk and media math you know, true omni-channel players, but the but the market tends to call them that. Yeah. Um, you know, talk to us a little bit about the differences. So um, the the first thing to keep in mind is that um, our platform uh, was was built for literally from its first line of code um, using um, OpenRTB 2.3 and higher specification. And the biggest, the biggest difference, there's a couple of differences uh, between that and sort of OpenRTB 2.2 and lower. Um, but the biggest one is that, um, that we, don't, we don't actually serve ads whole the way the, the traditional display platforms would do it. Um, we assemble the ad in real time, assembling all the elements in about 40 milliseconds. And um, in order to do that, um, you, it's a very difficult thing to be able to retrofit your existing tech stack to be able to accommodate that. The Trade Desk has done that uh, to a certain extent. Um, obviously, uh, Google's DV360 platform has been able to do that as well. Um, but, but many of the other omnichannels have very, very limited capabilities in terms of being able to execute uh, native at all, let alone at scale. Um, so that brings us to sort of the second thing that, that differentiates us from the way the omni-channels approach um, native um, in that 100% um, of the supply integrations that we have are built on, um, not only on, uh, op and we're now up to OpenRTB 2.5 and, and we'll be actually um, processing and, and executing on 3.0 once it's finalized. The IAB is talking about finalizing it in the first quarter of, uh, of 2021, and uh, we're ready to go when, when it's finalized. Um, but a big, a big important part about that is that every piece of, of, uh, of supply, every, every impression that we process, in fact, every, every signal, every auction that comes in um, is um, is integrated at the impression and at the placement level. Uh, it's not at the URL level. It's not at uh, even at the at the page level, and that's that's a very significant difference because um, it allows us to process all of the related signals around placement um, in a in a very in a very robust way. So. Um, Every every one of those signals does a really great job of informing our bidder on on who that person is and what kind of content they've interacted with before and um, and and that all allows us to actually be quite uh, I don't want to I don't want to say anything in absolutes but we're 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 fairly cookie proof because of that in other words we don't we don't rely our bidder doesn't rely on a third-party um, cookie signal um, for for anything if we don't we don't have it we we can we can use our our placement level data and all of the contextual information and all of the uh, all of the other information that comes in that signal um, to inform our bidder in a way that uh, we don't re we don't have to rely on third-party cookies. So I know that's not the topic you were. You were initially asking about, but 
but that's a very important, the fact that we're integrated at the placement level, and we had to do it um, because it was the best and most effective way for us to make sure that we were assembling ad to look like it was supposed to look every time every time we uh, filled it. Um, but the added benefit of that is that we're, um, we have a great deal of contextual and other kinds of signals to be able to inform our bidder other than a third-party cookie. Right. I, so, so let's get a little granular on that. So, so who are the biggest, some of your biggest clients and, and, and talk to us about why they specifically use BidDelect. What, yeah. what do they see? What are the results? What's the effectiveness that they get? So, um, first of all, I would say um, 90% of, of our customers are, are ad agencies who are executing um, native campaigns on behalf of, of their brands. Um, uh, the second thing is that, that that customer base has tended to be, for us, fortunately, very, very big brands. We, um, we, we do get uh, some kind of... Uh, you know, a, a little bit of, of folks kind of trying us out on a on a performance basis, or or you know, sort of smaller, more regional kinds of campaigns. Um, but but generally speaking, the the campaigns that run on our platform tend to be national or even global. Um, highly, um, you know, highly, and, and I would say sort of mid funnel up. Uh, we do, as I say, get some performance campaigns. And in fact, some of the performance campaigns tend to be from very, very large brands um, and can take advantage, but they can take advantage of our scale on the supply side to, to make performance campaigns, uh, you know, pay and back in. So um, one of the things that we also see is that the vast majority of, of folks that use our platform are using it so that they can create a higher level of engagement or or some kind of other uh, engagement or performance level KPI uh, at scale um, by using content or using some other kind of uh, some other sort of higher level. That's what native actually does: is it allows you to use content as the as as a key way to engage uh, consumers. On behalf of your brand, and those are the kinds of folks that that tend to use native advertising in general, um, and certainly with us uh, to use that content of theirs as a way to engage with consumers. And that's that's a different approach than typically is is a pro is 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 managed by um, a, you know sort of a more traditional display kinds of campaign, which tends to be offer driven. Um, or, or using other kinds of, of, of KPIs like, like CTR. Although, you know, it's, it's interesting. Many, many of the advertisers on our campaigns uh, on our platform use CTR as a primary KPI. But, um, but those that really make the most of it use other engagement-type metrics post-click. Yeah, and I would imagine, though, that they, uh, a, a native platform that's designed specifically to perform, particularly as it relates to the content and uh, created the, uh, creating the ad, in, you know, in real time in inside the uh, the placement, the um, the click through rate's got to be superior to a general programmatic ad being offered up. Yeah, it, it it is, and. Um that's the easiest KPI for us to crush typically is CTR. 
Um, the um, the when you, when you start talking about um, other more sophisticated um, attribution or uh, uh, you know other types of conversion metrics and things like that, um, then then um, then the superiority of of something like a native approach versus a traditional display approach starts to increase exponentially because um, because if you have the capability, if you have the ability, for example, we have a we have an engagement metric, a uh, proprietary one. It's an engagement score that that you can use uh, if 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 the advertiser uh, will allow that to be placed on on their destination website or destination content. Um, we can measure a whole host and provide analytics around a whole host of post-click metrics. And, and the important thing about that isn't just to provide the analytics, but you can actually, we can, we can actually set our, our bidder uh, and the platform to optimize a campaign to post-click metrics. And, uh, and that's when you really see performance go, go, go through the roof, really. It's really an incredible thing. Yep. So, so when you're looking, you know, when your salespeople are out there, who are they getting compared against? I mean, obviously you got the big guys, but um, you know, who's who's really the competition? And 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 again, your competitive advantage that you see over them. You know, it's, it is interesting. Most of the, you know, in the early days, in the in 2014, when we were when we were rolling the platform out. The, the the traditional native folks hadn't really sorted themselves out based on being demand focused or being supply focused. Most most folks were just happy to be able to say, "We'll take your campaign and we'll we'll provide uh, the supply and we'll do what we can." Um, now, and you know, we were we were one of the first in the early days to say, "Look, we're demand focused. We're." We're not an SSP. We're not an ad network. Um, we went out and and did integrations with all the exchanges and and even particularly we started with the supply uh, and the the SSPs and exchanges that were native focused. But because of that, um, there are only a handful of folks that remained as specialists in the in the native specific world became demand specific and um and the you know outbrain has a a, a a division that uh that that's in that world the tivo still does some direct um direct selling even though they also have a native exchange um but nativo has some proprietary uh ad executions that they sell directly as well um but um and, and there's a few others, uh, Stack Adapt and Storygize and and folks like that. But um, but increasingly, and I would say it's really been over the last two and a half years. Um, increasingly, you know, I would say our our primary competition um, for for brands that want to execute campaigns at scale um, programmatically. Um, is it increasingly has been the trade desk and DV360 um, because they're they're the only ones that have any real capabilities around native that comes close to the kinds of capabilities that our specialized platform even offers. Um, I would obviously, for self-serving reasons, 
and have a very good, strong case to make that uh, that the capabilities we have uh, in native far exceed uh, what both the Trade Desk and DV360 can do, simply because they're not purpose-built the way we are. Right. And there's a whole bunch of things that, that we do better. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's the fact. You know, our, today, you know, our primary competition tends to be the omni-channels and those two in particular, because um, most of the big, the big agencies, um, you know, have, have started consolidating buying platforms. And, uh, and so, um, you know, the first, the first question that they'll ask if they're not using us is, I've just cut down from, from 15 demand side platforms to three, why should I add you? Um, or they'll say, you know, we're, we're consolidating. And in, in that case, if they're already using us, they'll consolidate while the duplication is on the traditional display side. And there's typically not any duplication on the native side. Right, right. Interesting. So, so we are obviously and have been for some time now in this terrible pandemic, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and guys like you and me who are, uh, who are not 25 anymore uh, <laughs> have, have, uh, have seen a few things in our lives. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and uh, someone like yourself has uh, been able and seen the, obviously, the catastrophe of 2000 and 2001, uh, again in 2008, but but this pan- pandemic has been very different, right? Never has there as an economy been totally shut down, not only domestically but globally. Yep. So, as you think about, you're kind of hopefully we're coming out of it to some degree, right? So, so what are some of the things that you learned about your management style? What are some of the things that you did that you've done before, and uh, what are some of the things you've done differently uh, in in this particular crisis? That's a that's a good question because I've I've been thinking about that a bit uh, more than a bit actually through the whole pandemic because you know as you say th- there's a lot of unique uh, unique circumstances around around this crisis compared to the other ones I've lived through um, and um, and so you know I wanted to make sure that we weren't missing anything just because we'd never seen it before so I'll get to those things in a second but. What I what I also found interesting is is the the stuff that we that we did for this one to manage through the crisis that were similar to the things we had to do in 08 and in 2000 2001. So I'll start with those. You know, the basic the 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 first things that that we did to to manage through this one that we did through every other one was to to make sure that we instantly tried that we, we instantly, the minute we felt a problem and, and saw something on the horizon that was coming, even if the impact of it was in the early days minimal, as it was with this um, and the other ones, um, we tried to get ahead of it. So we, we tried to anticipate. We, did, we ran a bunch of sensitivity models, um, actually in late February and in early March, to try to say what would happen. In particular, and, and I think one of the things that we, we correctly called this time around is, um, is we, we tried to anticipate which categories or which sectors of spend on our platform would be most directly impacted by COVID. And, um, and, um, and it's not like we're a bunch of geniuses that 
you know, we figured out that travel and entertainment would be two of the hardest hit ones. Um, but but we we assumed that would be the case, and that in fact was the case. And so we we planned uh, around that. We we took some steps with with our clients, you know, like Hilton and Marriott and Intercontinental an Intercontinental Hotel Group and Cirque du Soleil and a whole bunch of folks that that were were really active spenders. Um, you know, we reached out to them right away and said, you know, what's what's happening? What what you know? What can you guys do? But we also planned for the fact that we'd likely see that business be put on hold for a while. And, uh, and so we, we planned on that. And that, that's very similar to what we had to do back in 2000 and 2001 and what we had to do um, in 2008 when there was the initial wave of, of impact was most severely felt by, by a couple of sectors or three or four sectors in, in, uh, in 2000, 2001, mostly internet advertising related. And then in 08, financial services and, and, uh, and housing and real estate and things like that. But, um, but yeah, that's, that was the, the first thing we did is what, what we had to do with the earlier times. What was unique about this is that, um, that we really had no visibility around, uh, around what, when the dials would be turned back on because we've, we'd never really seen a situation where, um, where the, you know, the government and both local state and national, um, were directly impacting or indirectly impacting, um, you know, what people would be able to do. Um, you know, for example, when they'd be able to get on an airplane next, when they'd be able to start, traveling and meeting with clients uh, in physical locations that they normally did but couldn't currently. And so the idea of the recovery was was really was really challenging to, to sort of forecast. Um, you know um, and and I think you know one of the things that we did in addition to having really over communicating with existing clients and and their agencies, um, but we you know, we were having almost daily meetings with with people like Forrester and Gartner to to try to get a sense from them uh, what they were learning from their clients who were our clients, but for other things um, to try to get you know some data points around what we could do to to appropriately plan. And then finally, you know, the the thing that I think was most unique uh, that you know was important for us to take advantage of is that there were some facilities. Some debt facilities, uh, some programs that we could we could we had to pounce on and take advantage of, like PPP, um, to to sort of help bolster our balance sheet, um, and and those kinds of things didn't exist, frankly, in 08 for us, uh, and they didn't exist for us in 2000 2001 um, right. at AOL, and um, and you know we we took very proactive steps. You know the other thing that we did is is we um, we met with our existing investors and said, "Look, um, you know, there's this this crisis is real, and we're going to need to to bolster our balance sheet. And um, and are you guys with us? And fortunately, our business was cooking really well before the crisis hit. And uh, and they said, "Yeah, this is an extraordinary set of circumstances. We're we're there if we if you need us. And uh, and that Perfect. was that was really good, you know, because yep. you know the fortunate thing is many of 
you know, we have institutional investors and, uh, and they had also been through crises like this before and knew that, um, that we weren't just coming to try to take advantage of things. We had, we had to, we had a very real thing that we had to take advantage of and, and they were there for us. And that was, right. that, that was the, um, that, that was, uh, we've heard that, um, quite a bit. The, the fact that the biggest challenge was to understand where the bottom was yeah. right? and how long, how long was this going to continue and where was the bottom? And then, and then when there, whenever there was a recovery, was it a V shaped recovery in advertising? Was it a Nike swoosh and the, <laughs> yeah. Or any of the other acronyms that people in uh, you know <laughs> the K. I hear about the K, you know. Yeah, the K, the K recovery, right? <laughs> why don't we for the you know for the for the second half of this? Why don't we why don't we uh, play a little elder statesman here? Let's let's. Uh, you've been in the business for a long time. You know, you've been in ad tech for a long time. You run a number of companies. You've seen a lot. So so let's 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 talk about one of the things that everybody's talking about, which is the post cookie world. What, you know, what do you think that looks like? And and um, and and who do you think just more broadly are going to be some of the winners and uh, and and those that might be a little more challenged? Yeah. So, um, so we look, you know, and and just from observations, I think there's been far too much reliance in the ecosystem on on data that should have stayed proprietary or shouldn't have been um, sort of out there in the wild west you know, sort of being shared and take advantage of. And so um, I, I, it's, it's unfortunate that the third party cookie um, was sort of the first to kind of be, be sort of retired. Uh, I'll be kind and call it retired instead of slaughtered. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, there were some advantages, you know, the, the, the third party party cookie does a lot of good stuff. You know, it, it, uh, it allows for um, a, a pretty effective um, retargeting capability. Allows for uh, a pretty effective uh, attribution modeling. It, it allows for a pretty effective way to to to, to manage re- reaching frequencies to a certain extent. But but um, but it had to go. And um, and 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 in fact, I would say from not just from my perspective, but from my experience. Um, the biggest challenge with, with the third party cookies demise isn't that it was flawed and should have been retired. It's that, um, there isn't an obvious or, or clear de facto standard on what is going to replace it. And so what's happening is, um, there's a lot of sort of scrambling on a lot of people's parts around saying, okay, if, if it's going to go away, what's going to replace it? And, and because there's no clear standard, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that are sort of being thought about for what it's going to, what's going to happen. So I would look at it from sort of from two, two ways. First, what's going to happen on the targeting side? And, and I think things like Live Ramps Identity Link and, and the Trade Desks Link the universal ID and um, and those kinds of things, um, you know, will will play a bigger role, and will will have to will have to be some kind of de facto standard for addressing not just the targeting but frequency capping as well, um, because 
you're going to have to find a way to, um, if you don't have things like contextual targeting capabilities and, and all the other things that, that placement level integrations like we have uh, are at, at work, you're going to need to have some kind of replacement because you won't be able to target audiences any other way other than through first party audiences. And, right. um, and so um, that, that sort of also speaks pretty well for our capabilities uniquely because, because we, we, we didn't build our whole targeting capabilities uh, on, um, you know, and exclusively on, on third party cookies. So um, we, you know, we have very sophisticated contextual targeting capabilities because um, we, we integrated all of our supply at the placement level and, um, and that fits perfectly in that. Will it mean that even with, with those expanded, robust contextual capabilities and the other things that we do with artificial intelligence to, to create you know, these probabilistic models around, around targeting, will it have an impact? Uh, yeah, it, it, it certainly will have some, but we're, we're, we're very immune to it. I, I actually like to think that we're sort of cookie-less uh, mm-hmm. in terms of our, our, uh, our abilities uh, on the targeting side. Um, the, other, the other area, though, that I think is, is going to be a little bit more challenging um, is going to be around the attribution side, because um, that's one of the, the places that um, that frankly, we have the capability to provide an advertiser with attribution models and data all day long, but that's like grading your own homework, right? So, yep. so advertisers yep. are always going to be looking for some kind of third-party um, verification or third-party um, attribution data, and and so um, that's where you know we're you know, we're working with all kinds of other folks to try to, to try to come up with some interesting models and capabilities around that for attribution. Um, and, and that I think is where, um, where it's probably the most up in the air, you know, and, and I've, I've heard, and again, you know, Google isn't saying very much publicly these days about very much of anything, um, because of the, you know, the, this, these recent antitrust things and, and, and other stuff, but, but I, you know, they, they're probably spending a lot of time trying to figure out what's next from them on the, on the, on the browser side at at Chrome. And so I think, you know, that's that, that, you know, it's, it's parties like that, that we're also talking with to try to see if we can get some insights on what's next on the attribution side. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's a, that's a great segue for the uh, for the other kind of major headline that's going on right now, which is you know the U.S. government putting pressure on Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, yeah. uh, you know, with some believing that they might be forced to be broken up. And, and I, it was it was interesting because just yesterday I saw a, a, a news flash that the Department of Justice said it was going you know after Google for that for antitrust practices as you alluded to. Um, and uh, in your view, what's what do you think it's going to happen? Do you think uh, there's a there's a good pro- probability that you could see uh, you know Amazon or Facebook all some you know broken up forced I, to yeah I think um, 
I, I think the my my view is that um, this is overdue. Um, I think they're starting with Google because it's the most obvious one, and frankly, the one that probably is going to be the easiest um, to to break up the pieces that are the most monopolistic or the most anti-competitive. Um, I've felt for for many years if you've got if if you and and look. I, I'm I'm a big fan of Google. We we buy a lot from Google on the ad exchange, um, but we also compete with Google on DB360. And if I'm if I'm competing with a company that has both the buy and the sell side locked, there's something wrong there. You know that's uh, sorry that's that's kind of the very essence and and the very definition of anti-competitive vertical integration. You know there, that's a lot more anti-competitive than Standard Oil ever was. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, there is, they're going to start with search because it's the biggest piece and understand what's going on with, um, you know, buying and selling on, you know, uh, uh, with search. But I think that the, the place that it's the most anti-competitive from a structural standpoint is dealing with the demand side and the supply side uh, simultaneously. And owning both sides of of the equation, and um, and I think that's a logical place to to split up. Um, you know, um, you know, if you think about it, you know, Google got in that position through acquisition. So you know, they they actually bought those components and put them together anyway. Um, and um, and it's it's time that. Um, you know that 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 gets taken. So I, I do think there there'll be the start, and but I don't think it's it's the place where it's going to end. I, I do think they're going to look at Amazon. Um, they're going to look at um, they're going to look at Apple. They're going to look at Facebook. Um, but I think they're going to look at different places potentially there. I, I don't think the monopolistic capabilities or the idea around anti-competitive behavior is as strong with those other parties. Uh, in the ad ecosystem, as they are, as they are necessarily here. Although um, there certainly are, there certainly are uh, instances of it. You know, uh, Amazon's ad business is uh, is a closed ecosystem, and right. um, yep. you know that. You know, you could argue, and and I certainly could that it's uh, that it's anti-competitive just by its nature. But uh, but I think those will be a little bit tougher tougher nuts. And it just depends on how aggressive the Justice Department will end up being. Um, and, uh, and we'll see, you know, what it is. But, you know, that's, that's kind of the way I look at it. Right. Yeah. The, uh, well, it's also, it's also spawned some interesting trends in ad tech, right? Whereby there's been copycats to Amazon, you know, Walmart now with Walmart Media Group. Yeah, Absolutely. You no, know, uh, Target's got you know Target's got its own its own version. Yeah. Um, you're seeing you know you're seeing arguably competitors pop up to say, look, I can create my own walled garden. Yeah, I, hey, I think that's a that in itself isn't anti-competitive. Um, it only is when you provide advantages to yourself that you don't provide to others that you want to participate in your ecosystem. Um, you know, I, I think I think retailers in general have always found, um, you know, ad, 
you know, ad-supported models to be the only source of profit they really had, you know. Back in the day, you know, when I started my career at Procter & Gamble, and I know a lot about uh, co-op advertising and, uh, and PDF and all the other stuff. So, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's nothing new. It's just the, the form it's taken now. Yep, I agree. I agree. Well, you know, the other thing is that uh, kind of uh, that that's happened because of the pandemic is certain certain um, certain trends have been accelerated, right? Um, obviously, e-commerce has been is one of them, as we talked about, right? I mean, that that I think most people are going to agree will uh, will only continue even after the pandemic, yep. right? Because it's forced people who were slow to buy buy items, whether it's anything from groceries to, you know, office equipment to whatever, uh, it forced them to do that because it was the only way they were going to be able to get anything. Um, and they realized how convenient it was. And you're going to see the retailers now accelerate that uh, improvement of their own delivery systems. You've got ed tech, right? Education technology, yep. because everybody's had to kind of, you know, uh, accelerate the learning at home and learning from a distance. You got the same thing on the telehealth. telehealth. Yep. Um, how do you think, what, what do you see that's new and interesting, if anything, frankly, in ad tech coming down the pike? Because, you know, ad tech is, it's for, you know, look, I mean, again, I think one of the, one of the advantages that people like you and I have is we, we, um, at least for me anyway, I was around before the internet was really a, yeah. a thing. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, I'm an old magazine, I'm an old magazine guy, uh, cause there was no internet. But, um, you know, but there's going to be, you know, and so you've seen ad tech kind of be in favor, out of favor. But, you know, it seems to be in a spot these days where it's uh, not a, other than the trade desk, right, with its mm -hmm. incredible valuation of 30 plus billion now, more than Omnicom and WPPs combined yeah. and their fraction of their revenue. Um, the, uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be any bright, shiny stars. Um, and I might be missing something. So I wanted your observation on that. Yeah, I think there's a, the ecosystem has been crying. It's just literally been weeping uh, around a couple of, a couple of confluence the, the issues that are beginning to come together. Um, you have, at, simultaneously, you have the issue of privacy, brand safety, and efficiency in the supply chain all coming together. The idea that, um, you know, the tech tax, the so-called tech tax, where you've got, um, you know, for every dollar that the advertiser spends, uh, only about anywhere between 20 to 40% of it lands at the publisher because it's getting sucked up along the way by a whole bunch of multiple hops and and, uh, you know, different tech providers sticking their hands out and, and, and all of it. And, and the, the net effect of all of that means that ad, the ad buyers have less working media and the publishers have less yield. And, and, and when you combine that with the whole idea of of brand safety and uh, and and the overall performance of of an ad um, and the amount of engagement through consumers, that whole that whole mess of an of the ecosystem where you look at a Lumiscape or you look at any of these charts where that you got you know literally hundreds of of players buying 
to, to have some kind of meaning, um, that's ripe for a cleanup. And, and I think when you see things like what can happen in the header for the publisher, when you see things that can happen around a more efficient path to supply, when you can see things like um, of really understanding how to provide real privacy on, on the data front and user privacy and, and at the same time offer um, compelling and relevant advertising for consumers and make the ad experience better, that's, that's where the development's happening. So I think, honestly, I believe the next two years is going to be a revolution in the supply path. And, um, and its effect on not only on performance, but on, on how consumers are going to interact with advertising and, and at the same time be protected from bad actors who have been abusing the system, uh, how data is going to get used and not abused, all of that. I think that's where it's going to be. Perfect. I think that is an absolute excellent way to end what I what I what I will call a incredibly engaging, fun, and provocative oh, thanks, dialogue that we've had for the past forty five minutes. So, th- I want to thank Lano Tremba, CEO of Bitelect. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, enjoyed every minute of it. And uh, I'm Jay MacDonald. This is the Digital Capital Advisors CEO Podcast. And we'll uh, look forward to talking to everyone again soon. Thank you all.